The history of Brownsburg, Indiana, formally starts with a man named James Brown. He arrived in 1824 as Brownsburg's first settler. Some 11 years later, in 1835, William Harris purchased the land where 267 and 136 intersect. Mr. Harris named the town Harrisburg. However, one year later, in 1836, when he established a post office, they realized there was already a Harrisburg, Indiana, and we had a problem. So they adopted the name of the first settler, James Brown, hence we are now Brownsburg. In 1863, some 20, 30 years later, if I was telling you the history of Brownsburg, I would remind you or inform you that it split into two townships, a northern township, Brown, after James Brown, and a Southern Township, named Lincoln, after then-sitting President Abraham Lincoln. This was 1863. This history of Brownsburg I just gave you is a similar style of history of what most biblical genealogies look like. You track back to the people, and the people bring us to where we are today. But suppose I were to tell you the story of Brownsburg in a different way. Suppose I said, let me tell you the story, the history of Brownsburg, and I began with the Chinese dynasties. And then I told you a bit about the Mongolian empires and Attila the Hun. After Attila the Hun, I briefly touched on Charlemagne and the French monarchy. But I never got to the actual founders of Brownsburg. You would be perplexed, and rightly so. And yet, the second example is a closer analogy to the Genesis 10 genealogy. We don't actually get to the actual founders, the progenitors of the Israelite people. That's Abraham. He would come later. And we're seeing these people groups, these nations that would be dispersed over the whole earth. So it's a unique kind of genealogy. It's, it's really one that is different than almost any other genealogy in the whole Bible. And so as we approach it, what I want to do is make five quick uh, sort of overview observations and then draw three lessons from this genealogy. The three lessons that outline is, is in your bulletin there. These five overview comments, I'm gonna move quickly through them. Don't try to write them down. We will put them on the screen to help you sort of follow along. Uh, and if you want me to, I'm happy to send you my notes or you can re-listen or whatever. Uh, let, let's jump in here. Introductory comments about this genealogy. First, this genealogy deals with nations and people groups more than individuals. Most biblical genealogies are dealing with individuals. This is more nations and people groups. It's a different kind of genealogy. It's not only tracking the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that we've seen so regularly through Genesis. No, it's actually tracking all the nations of the earth as well as their dispersion on the earth, their division on the earth, and their diversity on the earth. Second, we shouldn't read modern categories of geopolitical nations and race back into this passage. In other words, don't spend your time this morning trying to figure out who made their way to Saudi Arabia. That's not the point. There's a, a fourfold designation we see here in this passage that's also mirrored in Revelation of tribe, language, people, nation. And the closest modern category would be that of maybe a people group. You've heard that term described perhaps in, especially in Asia and in Africa, different people groups. That may be the closest modern term, but don't try and read geopolitical nations race back in. That will get you confused. Third, chapters 10 and 11 go together. Important to note that. 
Chapter 10 says here's how these nations were dispersed, but chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, they're together. Right, so what happens is chapter 10 is literarily before chapter 11, although chapter 11 is chronologically after you read them together and it all makes sense, chapter 10 sort of gives you the overview. Here's the nations, how they were dispersed. Chapter 11 zooms in on a specific spot and says, hey, now more explicitly, here's how this dispersion happened. It's a bit like what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. Here's the overview, here's what happened. Now let's zoom in on a specific part. We'll get there next week. Number four, the account of all the nations is unique in ancient Near Eastern literature. So there are lots of genealogies. If you look at the Babylonian records, the Mesopotamian records, these other ancient Near Eastern uh, works, you could find lots of genealogies. But one like this one that concerns itself with all the nations is unique. That is to say, this genealogy is not merely sociological. It's also theological. And as we progress, we'll see a total of 70 nations listed. That will be symbolic for the totality of all the nations. It's 70 actual nations in Genesis 10, but as you move forward throughout the Bible, will be both 70 real nations and symbolic as the totality of all the nations. Now, what I'm saying here is a phrase I've used all throughout the book of Genesis when we say it is a historical narrative serving as a theological argument. It's telling you real history with the point of communicating God's plan of redemption. Historical narrative, theological argument, we continue to say that over and over. Or stated a little differently, the genealogy doesn't exist for, primarily or most centrally for the purposes of dating the earth or figuring out who was alive when somebody else was alive. Those might be interesting pursuits, but it's not the main point of the genealogies. Fifth and finally, introductory comment, we should see this passage as a foundational missionary text. Now, if you got up this morning and read Genesis 10 because you saw that on Facebook we were going to be there, I doubt you read it and said, oh, that's my favorite missionary passage. But you should have. And I hope by the end you'll see that with clarity and we'll, uh, we'll probably spend more time on the third point than, than the first two because of that. Because I think that's not just uh, something that I decided I wanted to talk about this week, but it's actually Genesis 10 in the context of the whole Bible is intended as a clear missionary passage uh, for the gospel to go forward to the ends of the earth. I told you I'd move quickly through the introductory comments. I did. And now let's move into our outline with that kind of foundation laid where we can settle in and start to draw some deeper truths, some lessons out of Genesis 10 and what it has to say. The outline is on the, the sheet of paper you have. If you were not able to grab one yet, I'd encourage you to reach down to the end of the aisle and pick one up that may be helpful for you. Here's the first lesson that I think we ought to see from Genesis 10. The nations are dispersed because of rebellion against God. The nations are dispersed because of rebellion against God. Now, as I say that, you might think, Justin, that seems clear from Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel, they tried to do their own thing, disregard what God had said. Are you borrowing this idea from Genesis 11, or is it actually in Genesis 10? Good question. I do believe it's in Genesis 10. There's a few historical little footnotes along the way that give clear indications that the nations are dispersed because of rebellion against God. Perhaps the clearest is in verse 8, so let's take a look back there. Look at your copy of God's Word, Genesis 10, 8. Here's what we read. 
Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. If we were to continue, Nimrod's account actually goes all the way through verse 14. Seven verses to this dude named Nimrod. What's going on here? Is that not odd, especially considering it's a genealogy given to track the nations, and this one fellow gets seven verses? Unless it's there to make a theological point. And then it would all of a sudden start to make sense. And what does the name Nimrod mean? I thought you would tell me. Now, Nimrod means rebellion. So the chief of the rebels, the rebellers, is Nimrod. So he's a, he's a mighty man. He builds many cities, and he's known for his rebellion. He's the, the greatest of the rebellers in his day. Beyond his name, his first city was Babel obviously known for its rebellion against God, but also descending from Nimrod is Babylon, the Philistines, the Canaanites, all those who are known for rebelling against God. Then, we see that that's the first click. Oh, this is starting to see this in chapter 10, that the nations are dispersed because of rebellion against God. Look down at verse 25, a little bit further down in your copy of God's word. To Eber were born two sons, the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Seems the earth was divided in our days, but apparently it was divided back then as well. And to say that the land was divided is to say that the inhabitants of the land were divided. Right? If you say in an election cycle, the, uh, America is divided, you don't mean that there's an earthquake right through the, the middle of America and it got split in two and America was divided. You mean the inhabitants were divided. That's what it's saying here. And, and this particular verse is interesting because Peleg, the first guy listed there, in his days the earth was divided, he is a great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather of Abraham. And there seems to be a division being sort of foreshadowed here where there are those who will say, I will make my name great, and those to whom or through whom God says, I will make my name great through you. That would be what would be said to Abraham in chapter 12, just a couple of chapters later. And so there's sort of a foreshadowing of the division coming is for those who say, I'm going to make my name great, or between those who say, I'll make my name great, and between those to whom God says, I, God, will make my name great through you. And the, the nature of these divisions is listed three times, chapter, or verse 5, verse 20, verse 31. You see a similar phraseology, and the repetition tells us this is significant. So just look at uh, verse 5. We'll only read this one. Here's the, the nature of the divisions. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Their, their land or their territory is part of their, their division and their dispersion. Their language is part of their division and dispersion. Their clan, their tribe, their, uh, is part of that. And then their nation, maybe their political, the way they rule themselves is part of their division and their dispersion. And you get to the end of chapter 10, the chapter closes mainly seeing peoples of the earth divided and dispersed as a result of their pride, their rebellion against God, wanting to do things their way. And you imagine for just a moment, 
a Hebrew schoolboy being raised in the scriptures, reading chapter 10, and coming to the end a bit confused and a bit discouraged, not because the name seems odd to him, because he would have known most of those kinds of names, but because there does not seem to be a ray of hope anywhere in this section of scripture. And these rays of hope have been shining through every single chapter thus far. Genesis 3, the snake crusher is promised. Genesis 4, Seth the substitute son arrives. Genesis 5, despite a wicked world, there's Enoch who walks with God. Genesis 6, again, evil everywhere, and yet Noah was righteous and walked with God. Genesis 7, God promises, I will deliver you from the flood. Genesis 8, God actually delivers from the flood. Genesis 9, God gives the rainbow as a sign. I won't judge the earth in this way again. There's hope in every single chapter along the way until you come to chapter 10, and there seems to be no hope. That's why as a, we think of the, the third grade Hebrew boy or girl reading this passage may come to the end a bit confused. Like what's going on here? Alan Ross helpfully comments. He says, in contrast to the previous sections, here there's no ray of hope. The reader is left with the people of the earth hopelessly scattered across the face of the earth, divided from one another and from God. Here's the point in digging into this passage and seeing what's there. That pride and selfishness, wanting to make a name for yourself, is far more serious than we often acknowledge. It always causes hostility and divisions between God and between man. It always does. And one of the most frequent themes in all the Bible is how much God hates pride. You, You can't open your Bible hardly without missing it. Proverbs 8, God says, pride and arrogance, I hate Proverbs 16, the arrogant are an abomination, God would say. James 4, God opposes the proud. Daniel 6, those who walk in pride will be made humble. Isaiah 13, God says, I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogance. Galatians 6, God says, if anyone thinks he's something, he is deceived. Romans 12, don't be haughty. It's all over the place. And in their day of Genesis 10, in our day today, pride is incredibly subtle and generally often looked and more pervasive than we think. You you don't often hear people say, Justin, or to you, whatever your name is, insert name, I've just been convicted that I'm an incredibly proud person. That's not the prayer request I often get. Maybe, Maybe you're different than me. Maybe you get that three times a week. It's more often, well, interpersonal relationships are a little bit difficult. Things are really tight financially right now. My kids are coming off the rails. Don't have enough time to do all these things, feel too busy. One of the lessons that we should see here is that pride is more pervasive than we realize and more subtle. I don't want to be overly simplistic or reductionistic in, in application here, but there are some simple questions we can ask ourselves. To simply say, in which ways am I more concerned for making a name for myself than I ought to be? Or we could think about this in our terms of our accomplishments. What's the, what's the legacy that I'm going to leave is an animating thought. Or what are the letters that are going to be after my name? What's my accomplishments? And I take great pride in that. Of course, you don't verbalize it that way. Nobody says that. Like, well, I really think I'm something because... 
But if we're honest with ourselves, is that not part of how we consider and conceive of our own identity? We can think of our wealth in these ways. I heard someone say the other day, my main goal in life is to leave a really good inheritance to my kids. Well, certainly leaving an inheritance is a good thing to do. It's a, it's a noble and worthy goal. But if it's the goal of your life, you've been deceived. Pride in what I can do to give my kids and grandkids and great-grandkids a better life. It's a good goal, but it better not be your ultimate goal. Maybe we think of this in terms of our reputation, where I'm more concerned with making a name for myself that I think, man, I can't let someone know this thing that I said or did or thought because what would they think of me? That's wanting to make my name great. Friends, either our sins are covered by the blood of the lamb, the debt has been canceled as Colossians 2 would say, it's been nailed to the cross or it hasn't. Doesn't mean you have to go blasting every sin on social media, but if you can't confess to one or two brothers or sisters who are close to you, that is an indication that there may be pride creeping into your heart in ways that are really, really unhealthy. I don't know that there's a way that pride creeps in in a healthy way, so don't misquote me there. But, uh, but we could also ask, maybe the flip side of that question, in what area of my life might I lack concern for making God's name known? So the first side is maybe in what ways am I too concerned with my name? And the second part is in which ways do I lack appropriate concern for making God's name known? Right? It's two sides of the same coin. Right? It's May the 1st. It's nice outside. It rained yesterday, last night. It's going to be warm today and tomorrow. The grass is going to be growing. I wonder, though, do you have more concern for watering and fertilizing the grass in your yard than you do for sowing the seeds of the gospel and watering the seeds of the gospel in your neighborhood? Which grabs your attention more? I wonder, are you more concerned for investing in your 401k than investing in the global advance of the gospel? I wonder, do you have more concern for your boss thinking well of you than the widows of our church being well cared for? You see, there are ways that we can simply lack appropriate concern for making God's name known. His name is infinitely great already. You can't make it any greater, but you can make it known. And a subtle way that pride sneaks in is that I lack concern for the greatness of his name and making it known. Now, all these things I laid out are not necessarily bad things in their own right. Don't mishear me in that way. But they are like grass that withers and flowers that fade. And if you lean on them, you will be disappointed. So lean on the word of God that never fails and recognize that in Genesis 10, the nations were dispersed because of rebellion against God, which is always connected to our pride. And the same mistake they made is easy for us to make as well, and we would do well to look inward. Here's the second lesson from Genesis 10. The nations are connected through a shared lineage from God. The nations are connected through a shared lineage from God. So yes, they are dispersed because of rebellion, but they're still connected in some key ways because of a shared lineage from God. And a common question in our cultural moment today is to ask, how can dispersed and diverse nations be meaningfully connected? Is that not a common question? We're dispersed as a nation, we're diverse as a nation, and given our diversity and a whole host of ways of measuring diversity, how can we be meaningfully connected? 
And a modest proposal from Genesis 10 is to note in a meaningful way what is it that we have in common. Every single human being you encounter has the same image of God, the same sin nature, the same spiritual need of a Savior. And if you are in Christ, the same eternal destiny. You see, these, this common lineage from God bookends the chapter. Genesis 10.1 and Genesis 10.32. Take a look at verse 1 with me. We read, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Here it is. They all came from here. Common lineage. And then verse 32 picks up the similar thread. These are the clans of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. There's the common lineage that tracks how they go out. And throughout, the author actually uses two phrases to help us see a unified picture of all the nations. There's a phrase you see many times, 13 times to be precise, sons of. So to, to picture what's going on here, think of a, a family tree. If you say sons of, you're going up and into the past. I'm the son of Jim, he was the son of Billy, so on and so forth. When I say sons of, I'm connecting to the past. That phrase shows up 13 times in Genesis 10. There's another word, begat, or fathered, that would move downward in the family tree. I fathered Tessa, Rayanne, and Grace. That phrase shows up eight times. So the toggling back and forth of sons of moving up, fathered or begat moving down is meant to communicate a connectivity a unified picture of the nations. And what we've become really, really good at is not seeing what we have in common with our fellow man and more significantly with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but what our differences are and how we can separate ourselves sometimes over the silliest ones. Shai Lin, in his, his excellent book, said, said the following, our sin nature has made us experts at identifying differences between us and our fellow image bearers, and then finding creative ways to rationalize using those differences as justification to mock, marginalize, maim, and murder. Every elementary schoolyard bears witness to our innate ability to target and ostracize people we perceive as other from us. You see, too much emphasis on our differences leads to unnecessary divisions. What this doesn't mean, though, and it's important that I, I nuance this a bit, it doesn't mean that we don't talk about our differences. Differences matter. They're important. But if you don't talk about certain ethnic or political or theological differences, you end up kind of brushing over significant and important realities in the name of unity that brings no unity. Right, so, so I'm not saying we can't talk about the differences. We need to talk about them. But before we get there, Genesis 10 is reminding us to see what we have in common, the same image of God, the same sin nature, the same need of a Savior. And like I said, if you're in Christ, the same eternal destiny. And a hyper-focus on our differences actually has very practical implications for our discipleship. Think about this. I've heard people say something, or I've thought along these lines. I could never reach that person. I could never minister to that person because they're so different from me. They don't have any interest in common with me. 
Friends, let me just tell you, if, if Eddie Ferguson could learn to become my friend, then you can be friends with somebody who has different interests than you. Some of you don't know Eddie. He is one of my best friends, was a pastor here for years, has been sent out as a missionary to Costa Rica. And I say, we just could not conceive of the world more differently. And yet God has given us a beautiful friendship in the gospel where we've both been strengthened and encouraged by each other. But by focusing too much on our differences, we would have lost that opportunity for discipleship. Or maybe you say, Justin, it's not exactly that way, but so-and-so has not experienced the same sin struggle as me and therefore cannot minister to me in this sin struggle. Or you might use it as an out clause. Well, I haven't experienced that sin, so I can't help you in it. You're going to have to go talk to somebody else. Now, if the baseline need for ministering to someone as they're fighting against sin is that you have committed the same sin, that would also mean that Jesus is unable to help you in any sin. So maybe we focus on our differences a bit too much. Or to return to the point just about interest, notice among the disciples, Jesus brought together a tax collector and a zealot, one who wanted to overthrow the state and one who was a puppet of the state. Again, not to say the differences don't matter, shouldn't be talked about, but there is a lot in common that we can seek. What this often ends up being then is an excuse to not enter into the hard work of building relationships, of learning to see the world as someone else does, of entering into someone else's pain, of truly being an empathetic person, of listening carefully, not assuming I already know the answer. The investment that's required by prioritizing hospitality and sharing a meal with someone as a way that that meal can break down a barrier that maybe didn't need to be there. See, we need to not only see the same image of God and see the same sin nature and see the same spiritual need for us here, we need to act on it as well. I heard somebody say not so long ago, once I started to understand how sinful I was, it started to change my expectations of how everyone else would treat me because they're just as sinful as I am. And instead of being so easily offended and frustrated, I recognize I actually have more in common with them than I thought. I just like to be blind to my own issues and very aware of theirs. <laughs> right? So recognize Although the nations are dispersed because of rebellion against God, they are connected by a common lineage from God. And there's a lot that we can learn about what unity and harmony and loving one another looks like from that. Third lesson, and most significantly in Genesis 10. The nations are united by the single redemptive plan of God. The nations are united by the single redemptive plan of God. I mentioned previously there's a total of 70 nations listed in Genesis 10. 14 from Japheth, 30 from Ham, 26 for Shem, 70 actual nations that become symbolic, representative of the totality of all the nations. And I asked the question, why does God, this early in the Bible, only 10 chapters in, why is it this early in that it's important that we note the totality of all the nations? Why is that? This is such a foundational part of the Bible where we've barely begun. Why must it be considered and noted now? It's because all the nations were created to worship God and enjoy him forever. They were 
in the garden, Adam and Eve together worshiping God, yet separated in rebellion and in sin. And so what God does is he creates a new humanity. He creates a new worshiping people who are then commissioned to go out and proclaim the message of redemption and regather the nations around the throne of God. That's the, the, the arc of the Bible in a, a simple way. We were together worshiping, separated. God creates a new people, a new humanity, sends them out to take his message of redemption that will regather the nations around his throne. The point then is that God's plan for the nations is never diversity for the sake of diversity itself. That's not the end goal, although it can be very beautiful. It's diversity that will come to a unity around a greater thing, namely the throne of God and praise to him. This is very likely what Paul had on his mind in Acts 17. We see it on the screen. Paul says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. You see, from the very beginning, the Bible explicitly in Genesis 10, we see that God is over the whole universe. He's over every people group and has a plan to redeem from every people group some for himself. That's why I say this is a great missionary text. It starts to show us his plan, that he's the God of all the nations. It's important that you see this across the scope of the whole Bible, not just think that the pastor wanted to talk about missions this week, okay? So, so let, me, let me zoom in a little bit here. The totality of all the nations, Genesis 10, you come to the very end of Genesis, Genesis 46. It's on the screen, take a look. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. There's the totality of all the nations, and then when the new humanity, the new people that God has created reach 70, he begins to send them out. Deuteronomy actually connects these, so it's not just me drawing a random connection between 70 and 70, but Deuteronomy says there's a connection. Chapter 32 makes that. And then, if I zoom all the way ahead to the New Testament in Luke 10, Jesus, bringing the kingdom of God, bringing the new people with him, sends out 72 disciples. Now, why, why 72? Well, they're sent to bring this message of redemption, and there's actually a little bit of a, a debate within the manuscript evidence. Was it 70 or 72 there in Luke 10? Part of it depends on how you count the nations in Genesis 10. Some think 70, some think 72. And if you think 72 in Genesis 10, then you think 72 in Luke 10. And if you think 70, 70, you, you get that. The point is the connection is unmistakable. Jesus isn't randomly thinking, how many people should I send out? Well, there's 12 disciples, 12 should get her done. Eh, 24, 36, 48, 60, 72, 80, why not 100? 100 is a good round. Why does he say 70? Because there's a significance in saying the totality of all the nations were dispersed. I've created this new humanity, and I'm now sending them out with the message of redemption to regather them around my throne. You might be a bit skeptical of that. Maybe that's a new thought to you, but you likely know or at least heard of the very next verse after the 72 are commissioned in Luke 10. Pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. 
Well, clearly there's a missionary impulse there. And you're seeing connections across the whole storyline of the Bible that we were supposed to see before. Then in, in Revelation 5 and 7, we see the picture coming into full clarity. It was maybe analog before, and now it's come in 4K. And we read that Jesus was slain, and by his blood, a people were ransomed from every tribe and language and people and nation. The purpose is coming full circle. So what Jesus is doing, he's connecting the whole story of the Bible for us. So we see the dispersion here in Genesis 10, and you are supposed to read it in light of the plan to regather and the reality of the regathering that will one day happen. You hear that, you think the scope, the magnitude of what he's up to, you say, whoa, what a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him, heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve but as we think of being sent out with this message to proclaim, it is critical that we get the message right. Merely being sent out with a faulty message won't get us anywhere. We proclaim Jesus Christ crucified as the substitute for sinners. Why Acts 4 would say, uh, Peter would say in Acts 4 rather, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given among, or under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. See, in the, in, the, in the full cycle of it, we see that sin separates us from God. You might say it disperses us from the garden. It disperses us from the temple. It disperses us from the very presence of God. And Jesus comes by his blood to bring us back. We see that sin causes hostility between us and God causes division, and Jesus reconciles and brings it together. Sin causes us to be enemies of God, and Jesus comes and by his blood welcomes us to the family and makes us not only citizens of heaven, but a co-heir. It's incredible. Friends, let me just encourage you, this regathering of all the nations you may not see it in America as it seems to be moving towards a more secular reality, but around the globe, this regathering of the nations is happening. Take South Korea, for example. About 100 years ago, it was barely 1% Christian, if that, and is now 30% Christian. A remarkable turn, where South Korea is the second largest missionary sending country in the entire world. Think of China, where 60 years ago there seemed to be no presence for the church, and by some counts, more than 100 million Christians now. God is going out, and he's regathering his people. You think of, of the incredible evangelization of sub-Saharan Africa. Maybe you don't know this. In Ghana, 60% of the population identifies as Christian. Cameroon, 65%. Zambia, 75%. Uganda, 78%. It's astounding. God is doing his work as he promised he would. And yet, as we see it happening in many regions and in many areas, the need remains immense and growing in countless others as well. The Joshua Project is a, uh, a helpful resource as you consider and think about what is the need globally. I'd encourage you to, to visit their website, simplyjoshuaproject.org. They report there are over 7,000 unreached people groups. 
over 7,000. That doesn't mean that, you know, there's 7,000 people, there's an entire people group who does not have access to the gospel. That means everybody in Brownsburg, you might think, well, that's a very unreached person. There can't be, by definition, an unreached people group because here they have access to the gospel. They could find it if they wanted to. This comprises over 40% of the world's population that does not have access to the gospel. Over 3 billion, with a B, people who do not have access to the gospel. And so it begs the question, if the peoples of the earth have been dispersed because of rebellion against God, and they one day will be united by the single redemptive plan of God, then practically speaking, what are we called to do with our lives today to enter into the plan of God and participate as stewards of his gospel as we've been called to do? What is that supposed to look like, Justin, when you tell me how great the need is that 40% of the world's population has no access to the gospel? What are we supposed to do? First off, recognize this task has been given to the whole church. Acts 1, they'll make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28, go therefore make disciples of all the nations. The task is unfinished. We must have our eyes clearly focused on it. When we say sending into the world, it is a deeply uh, biblically and theologically based conviction that we must continue to have our eyes on. We must have a bigger vision for the gospel and for our lives than Parkside Bible Church, than Brownsburg, than the United States. There's a task that we are called to and our participation in it will look different as individuals, as different institutions. But we must not lose sight of the call that's been given. Three simple ways to follow through on what's been given to us. Number one, pray earnestly. It might feel trite for me to say, but perhaps coming out of this message and seeing the nations were dispersed and will be regathered around the throne of God, perhaps your action point is to say, Justin, I need to consider fasting one day a week over specific prayer for unreached people groups. I will pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors because the fields are white unto harvest. And if he is the one to regather them, he's a God great enough to actually follow through, even though it's way beyond my pay grade. I know someone that can do it and he will, will do it, not just he can do it. Pray for, the, pray for the Muslim world, the 1040 window where these majority of these unreached people groups exist. Pray for the re-Christianization of Europe. Scotland wants a great base for the gospel, a sending ground of the gospel in many counts is now considered not just lost, but actually an unreached people group where people in Scotland no longer even have access to the gospel. Pray earnestly. Secondly, friends, give generously. Give generously. You have the opportunity to invest your life and your resources in the greatest task in all the world that all the peoples would be regathered to sing praises to our great God and maker. I've said this before, but I'll remind you, every time you give to the general fund at Parkside, 20% of that goes to missions. We've built this in because a, a, a budget is a theological document at a church. It says what you value and what you prioritize. 
We continue to prioritize sending out missionaries. I just had a conversation at dinner with a brother uh, a week or two ago in our congregation who thinks that God may be calling him to an unreached people group. I pray he does. And I pray we can send him and send him well. Say, Justin, maybe I have given myself to investing my, my time and my talent for the advance of the gospel. And this week I need to have a, a serious look at the budget and think about, am I investing my treasure in that way? Maybe you, give, maybe you give generously to Parkside Bible Church. You say, Justin, I'd like to give specifically to some mission agencies, some organizations that focus on these unreached people groups. I'd love to talk to you and help you get connected to some ones that do a good job there. Right, let's have that conversation. But yes, pray earnestly, but two, give generously. And three, go boldly. Friends, go boldly. Maybe like the Fergusons, you are being called to a foreign nation. That's very, very possible. And I pray that God will raise up more missionaries from within our midst that we can be sending them out. But for you to go boldly might also mean that you're being called to reach your neighbor. You're being called to have them over for a cookout and say, I see that the gospel needs to advance in Brownsburg, in Pittsburgh, in Lebanon, in Wisden, in Indianapolis, in Speedway, in Zionsville, wherever you're at. Because when Christians stop telling others about the gospel, that's how Scotland becomes an unreached people group. And there are souls around you that need Jesus. Are your neighbors effectively unreached because you've not told them about Jesus? Yes, pray earnestly. Yes, give generously. Yes, go boldly and recognize that Jesus in John 20, verse 21, says, the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So the, the reality for all of us is this. We're not asking if we've been sent. You've all been sent. I've been sent. That was a done deal, signed and sealed and delivered when you decided to follow Jesus. The question is, to whom are you sent and where are you sent? All of life is a mission field of sorts. And some of us will be sent in a different way to cross an ocean. The, the famous missionary, William Carey, several hundred years ago, as he was being told not to go into missions. Task is too great, it's too dark, it's too hopeless, you won't come back. Famously told his brothers and sisters, his church, his, those around him, he said, look, here's what you need to do. You need to expect great things from God. Your vision is too small. You don't expect him to do big things. And because you don't expect him to do great things, you don't attempt great things for him. He coined the phrase, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Park said, may we raise our vision from Genesis 10 this morning to see the table of nations dispersed and one day will be regathered and expect that God will regather them and that he will use your efforts to regather them by the proclamation of his word and therefore you attempt great things for God. We see a God that's great enough to regather all of them. We can count on him to do what he said he would do. Attempt great things in your prayers. Don't just pray, God, reach the unreached people groups. God, do a great work. Look up the names of the people groups. Learn their lesson, their, their languages. Learn something about them. 
Learn some of the missionaries that are trying to translate their language or develop the language into a written code and pray specifically. So at the end of all history, we can gather and no longer sing, may the peoples praise you, but with the peoples praise God. That's the goal. And as Psalm 67 says, and as we will sing in a moment, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy because they finally found true life in the only place that it's found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.